you're listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a new podcast on medicine, oncology, and health policy. It's where we talk about everything that's important and nothing that isn't. I'm your host, Vinay Prasad. I'm joined today by Dr. Jeremy Setnar. Jeremy's an assistant professor of medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University. He's a practicing medical oncologist with a focus on genitourinary and thoracic malignancies. Dr. Setnar completed his fellowship training in hematology and oncology at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, he briefly worked on the faculty at the University of Wisconsin and has subsequently worked at the University of OHSU for how many years now, Jeremy? About five. About five years. And uh, you also are the program director. Correct, sir. The program director of the fellowship program. And that is the finest uh, hematology-oncology fellowship program in the nation. I will note um, to the listeners that I am the assistant program director. We're number one. We've been voted number one hands down by people in this room. By people, yeah. By everyone in this room, it is clearly 100% number one. Unanimous. Um, And this is the most meaningful ranking since the U.S. News & World Report ranking. This is the second most meaningful Mm -hmm. ranking in the business. Um, And I do have to disclose, I am the assistant program director. My focus is on scholarship and rigorous thinking. Um, And I should also disclose that for the services I provide, which is extensive lecturing, um, mentoring, um, you pay me, uh, how many dollars a year do you pay me for those services? Does that include uh, French press coffee? I guess that includes that uh, one cup of I guess half a cup of French press coffee you gave me the other day. Aside from that, there's no financial incentive for you to be a part of this program. I see. And I believe you referred to those $0 that you pay me as the value-based price or the outcomes-based contracted price. Seems like you get what you pay for. Uh, Why should uh, the listeners of this podcast, of which there are likely many trainees considering a promising career in hematology oncology, why should they apply to our fellowship program? I think we have... A great program for a lot of reasons. The research is really excellent. I think it's superb. Our clinical care, I think, is excellent as well. And I think the ability to interact with faculty, the ability for faculty to mentorship them, mentor them rather, is really exceptional. And, and we've had a number of graduates go on to academic positions in recent years. Yeah, we have. And I think it's um, also been a variety of different things that people pursued, whether it's community medicine on a pseudo-academic basis or whether or not it's hematology, general hematology. Um, I'm quite proud of the fact that our fellowship does produce excellent clinicians who also have an acumen with regard to research. And you're and you're also willing to experiment in the program because just in the in the few years I've been here, we tried a novel strategy. We had all applicants come and give a job talk. You remember that, Doctor Setnar? I do. The intent behind that was to hear a little bit about what the applicants were interested in. It was not to punish them or to. It wasn't a punitive talk. No, it wasn't a punitive talk. No. But like all talks, I guess there is a veneer of uh, punishment. No, I actually thought it was quite interesting, and I learned a lot about the applicants, and I feel like I learned about something about them that I didn't otherwise learn. But we also got a lot of feedback that this was an unusual um, precedent, and not a lot of programs did it. In fact, to my knowledge, no other program did it. And after that one-year experiment, we stopped doing it. But you know, I think um, I think that's actually something good is that we were willing to give something a shot and if it didn't go quite the way we wanted it we we're willing to peel back the next year and what about the crown jewel of our fellowship program which of course i'm referring to the wednesday conference um will you tell the listeners a little bit about the crown jewel our fellows have a unique opportunity to see their own patients in our va continuity clinic 
There are other programs like this across the country, so I'm not suggesting we're the only one. But not every program, because I actually trained in a program where we didn't have our own continuity clinic. We had the attendings patients that we saw. It, that's that's very similar to the setting I practiced in, or I learned in as well, mm-hmm. and I, I agree with you. So this particular situation, I think, is excellent for um, taking care of patients, learning how to communicate, learning which treatments are the best for an individual patient. So what it is, is every fellow has a panel of patients, and every uh, Thursday morning, they see those patients, and they write the notes, and they are that person's hematologist-oncologist. In order to make sure that we are giving the patient the best therapy, we have now uh, introduced a new tumor board, and it's focused 100% on these VA patients that mm-hmm. the fellows see. So on every Wednesday, we go through all of the new patients that are coming to our clinic so that we can, uh, in advance, give and prep the fellows to uh, think about certain uh, factors with regard to the treatment and toxicities and, and so on and so forth. It's usually a very uh, lively discussion, lively. mostly when you're there, because uh, you know there's not always one correct way to do things. And maybe the NCCN guidelines may say do X, Y, or Z, Correct. but we actually may say, well, you know what, I wouldn't do X, Y, or Z, or I, I would consider this. And so it's a really great opportunity for the fellows to present their patient very quickly, but more than anything, get into the actual treatment, which is at the end of the day really what this is all about. The bread and butter of oncology. And I think it also forces them to take responsibility, to take ownership, to make their own plan, and to um, come so prepared that they can handle, as you put it, the often um, uh, feisty discussions that take place about some of the um, you know historical controversial areas in oncology, uh, as well as some of the unique um, sort of discussions we have. And and it's, it's a pretty busy conference. We get through about 8 to 12 patients, new patients a week. Um, and, uh, I, and in the first hour of the conference. And then the second hour is followed by um, really a question and answer session where we run through board's questions, or on some days we take a deep look at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in a little segment I call Drug Reviews. Have you had the chance to come to one of these FDA drug reviews? I've been to several. And, 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 and what do you think about them? As much as I hate to admit it, you do an excellent job. And I think what the important part is is that you have to dissect Uh, the rationale behind a clinical trial. What was the question they were trying to answer? And what were the potential biases that influenced the the results? And most importantly, I think the endpoints are understanding what that primary endpoint is, whether or not it is a surrogate for overall survival. And uh, the other nuances of the statistical analysis uh, are really, really important and relevant. And I think we don't spend enough time talking about that during an edu- uh, in didactics because, you know, frankly, it's a little dry, but I think when you actually put it in the setting of a clinical trial that they're seeing a patient that's, uh, that's relevant to their uh, patient that's right there in front of them, I think it really um, adds to the discussion and, and really enhances their education. Yeah, I've been very really impressed by, um, by this, by this um, program. We basically have the fellows... Um, present the new drug approvals, go through the rationale, the mechanism of action of the drug, the efficacy data, the safety data, what was the landscape before the drug, and what is the landscape after the drug. And finally, we actually have been pressing them to say, you know, you're in the FDA, would you have approved this medication? And I think that leads to some of the most um, fun discussions and most thought-provoking discussions about the role of the regulatory agency and the role of what's the kind of data clinicians need uh, to help guide their decisions. But I brought you here today to talk to you 
and I heard you take a deep breath, so you're going to say something, but I brought you here today to talk to you about hype. A couple years ago, as you know, I did a little bit of a study on superlatives in cancer medicine. We looked for these words you hear often at Cancer Talks, game changer, miracle, revolution, cure, home run, breakthrough. And I think there's another one, but I'm forgetting it off the top of my head. And what we found was they were used, um, you know, it wasn't easy, it wasn't hard to find examples of them being used. We found about 100 examples in a very brief search. And we really were concerned with um, what drugs were they used to describe. And one of the findings we found um, was that about half of the drugs had not received FDA approval that were hailed as superlatives, and the other half had. But more concerning to me was that 14% of those drugs that were hailed as a superlative had only been given to a mouse or tested in cell culture. And I find that problematic. I wonder how you feel about that. Well, take me through, um, was this evaluated in lay press, popular press, or was this actually in the the journals that they... Well, this was using a Google News search, which draws heavily from the lay press, but also some of those technical publications that you read about, but um, that are are sort of indexed in the Google News search. Well, I imagine they're probably getting their information from a lot of different sources. Right. Um, And, you know, at the end of the day, their um, primary objective is to probably sell news. Move ink, yeah. And so my guess is a positive finding, such as this is a game changer, this is the going to revolutionize cancer medicine, is going to probably get more interest and more hits, right. as you would say, uh, rather than, boy, this was a negative study. Right. Um, you know, a very good thing that comes to mind right now is this uh, IBM Watson. Right. I've had a lot of patients come in and tell me this is going to be the newest, you know, latest craze. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden I hear that it's actually imploding. It's imploding that they that, mm-hmm. that this Watson has actually chose the wrong treatment for some patients. But I think that's not going to get as much interest as initially is as, as, as an exciting breakthrough. We yeah, all think, want that. We crave that, Vinay. I think the problem with our field is that at every step of the game, there's a perverse incentive to oversell or upplay your findings. That's true at the researcher level. It's true at the university press release level. It's true at the journalist level. It's true at the biotech investor level. It's really true at all levels. There's very little downward pressure um, towards the opposite of hype, which is what I call honesty. That's something I don't see as much of in this in this field. Well, what would you suggest would be the check and balance on that? Because it's... That's a good question. You know, again, you can't... Um, you can't police language. No. As, I, much as, as much as you do in the fellowship program. Let's no, hope not. Let's hope not. But you can't police it. But, here's, but there is a one... Um, how can I put it? You will not be able to police all parts of the system. That's, uh, for that, I'm sure. Um, but if I could wave a magic wand and, and, and actually do something, one of the things I would do, which I think would have a great impact, is I would intercept at the university press release stage. Um, right now, we have a system where press releases are often written by um, the part of the university that wants to put the university in a very favorable light. Um, and there is often no one person to be held accountable for a misleading press release. What I would want is a press release to say at the bottom, this press release was reviewed by this senior faculty member at this university, and that person takes responsibility for all the content of the press release and the accuracy of the press release. I think we have to have the academic who did the work, whose work is being amplified, take responsibility for the dissemination of that signal. And I think that would go a long way because academics are naturally, I think most of us are a bit cautious, willing to acknowledge limitations, be a little bit prudent. Uh, So that's my one solution. My second solution, I think, is something that they are working very hard on, which is for journalists um, to gain better facility with medical science, um, to understand the limitations of single-arm, uncontrolled, retrospective kinds of data sets, um, as well as 
uh, to seek the comment of a third party about every study who is not involved with the study and also not involved with a company. I think it's nice to have an independent quote in every one of these newspaper articles. Yeah, so let's talk. What is the downstream effect of that hype, though? What uh, is so negative about that? Let's say that a, a patient does clip out an article in whatever paper, and they come to you as, as your oncologist and say, look at this brand new treatment I just read about. Right. That's a great question. You know, why is hype problematic? I would say information isn't problematic. To learn about new drugs um, in an accurate and fair and balanced way uh, is not problematic. Um, hype is problematic. It's problematic in a couple ways. One, I think it leads people to have a mistaken idea about the promise of a potential novel therapy. And some of us have seen in clinical practice that there are at least many conditions in oncology where the standard of care therapy is something that really earned its place on the podium. It didn't get there by accident. It fought its way there through a series of well-done randomized trials that took decades. And there may be some patients who hear about those standard therapies, and they may want instead of the standard therapy, something new that sounds better, but doesn't have phase three data, doesn't have randomized data, maybe doesn't even have phase two data. And they may want that instead of the proven therapy. And those kinds of decisions, I think many oncologists are reluctant to make because we know that it's so much more difficult to throw a dart at the wall and strike the board um, than it is to go with something that has already proven benefit. And we may be more likely to steer that patient toward sort of the standard of care and think about these other options, maybe subsequent lines of therapy. Um, But the fact that there's so much hype has led, you know, in one case, immunotherapy, many, many patients with many different tumor types come to the doctor and say, I want immunotherapy. And you're like, well, you know, immunotherapy is great for some cancers and some indications, but it's not a panacea. And there are other situations where you probably are better off with chemotherapy. That's one way I see hype as problematic. The second way is, and I think, you know, you and I both know there's, there's a time in many patients' journey with cancer that they are taking medications with real side effects that may be making them feel bad in many ways, but they're doing it because they hope it's allowing them to live a little bit longer. And they kind of are always making this balancing act decision of, do I stick with this therapy or do I discontinue it? Do I take it for another month? Do I push through the side effects or not? And I think that kind of decision in a, made in an atmosphere of unrepentant hype, I think is a very unfair decision. I see people pushing through on therapies that I kind of feel as if they had a really unba- a balanced view of this product, they might want to discontinue themselves. But because they have a lofty or aspirational view of the product that may not be borne out by the evidence, they stick with it. And so I feel like, in a way, hype kind of robs us of autonomy. It, it makes us make decisions that are incompatible with what we truly want for ourselves um, because we misunderstand what the product may provide. And those are just two ways I see hype as problematic in our profession. How about you? What do you think about? I think the reality is that patients are going to hear, whether or not it's through a newspaper or through a blog or through a friend, about some treatment they've heard would be beneficial for them. I frequently am asked, oh, what about uh, some vaccine in Mexico? Or what about uh, some other therapy that I've never even heard of that's... um, Cuba cancer vax. That's right. Yeah. And those are... I think that's a fact of life. Even if you were to shut down the, the press and say, okay, no more... Uh, talking about how this is a game changer if this is a phase one clinical trial with a response rate of 40% and something. I think at the end of the day, this is a vulnerable population of patients. They are seeking a treatment that is going to impact and improve their overall survival or you know whatever endpoint you're looking at. So I think no matter 
what we put out there, I think there's always going to be misinformation, and it's our job to correct that misinformation. I would seriously hope that we would have the the wherewithal to discuss this with patients and to tell them this is not the best treatment for you, mm-hmm. even though you clipped out this article and it says it's a game changer in here. I see. So I think we agree on two things. One, it's a vulnerable population. Uh, and two, it's our job to, insofar as we can, uh, correct the misinformation. And And three... It's our job not to contribute to the misinformation. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think one other point that you're probably thinking is, well, if the clinician is conflicted, if that person is inherently biased, then if a patient comes and says, hey, I would like treatment X over Y, and that clinician has a proclivity to give X because of a conflict, then all of a sudden this idea of you know really objectively reviewing the data is, is kind of out the window. I think that's one of the challenges that we face in our field. Uh, I know Aaron Mitchell and colleagues have looked at that recently, and I'm kind of, I need to refresh my memory about the exact finding of their paper. But on this issue, I want to come back to one thing that I always read in academic journals, which I know you have read too and you've thought about. Overall, we found the safety profile of nesetumumab plus gemcitabine and cisplatin was acceptable and in line with expectations. Side effects are always tolerable or acceptable or manageable. Are they not, Jeremy? Have you ever read a paper where they said the side effects were not tolerable? My question to you is, is tolerable to whom? Does that bother you that every paper is essentially saying that? Do you think some of these statements are disingenuous? Yes. I think there is a, a stamp that we've all used and said that says this is tolerable, this is expected. I can only think of one. I can't give you the specific details where it said the toxicity of this. Actually, I can. There's been some instances within kidney cancer where you actually combine targeted therapies and they really have led to significant toxicity and the development of that particular regimen has kind of uh, fallen away. And somebody said it was unacceptable toxicity? I'm not sure about that word, but I can, yeah. I can come back to that. Right. But to your point, I do think that it is very easy to say the the side effects are tolerable. And I would certainly love to have a more granular way of looking at that that was uh, easily conveyed. I think looking at the you know percentage of grade three, four uh, adverse eff- effects is important. But I think at the end of the day, people just put a label on it. Right. It's tolerable, and then, move on. And then let's talk about this grade three, four, because I think we so often and easily fall into the trap that grade three, four toxicity is the measure of how bad a therapy is. But one of the underdiscussed aspects of cancer medicine is that the grade three, four toxicity being bad, that idea kind of came out of a time and era where the majority of therapies were cytotoxic therapies administered on a fixed schedule of several weeks, like you'd have a three-week break between doses. And so a patient could really have some grade three, four diarrhea uh, for two or three days. It would get better. Um, it would be a major, I mean, no one's discounting the fact that this is a bad problem. Um, it can often keep someone at home for a few days, make them feel terrible, uh, but it would get better. They'd have two good weeks and they could uh, receive the next treatment. Um, Then we entered an era where many of our medications became daily targeted therapies uh, taken often without break for the rest of your life. And in this era, I think what many of us have noticed is that it isn't just the grade three or four toxicities that are notable. Sometimes the grade one or two toxicities are notable because a grade two toxicity of fatigue or diarrhea can be truly incapacitating. And many of our patients discontinue the medications when faced with those do you do you feel that there's some truth to this? I think you hit on the 
key point there, which is discontinuation rate. Right. I think at the end of the day, you can call something grade three or grade two, whether or not it impacted the patients is subjective. Mm-hmm. Some people are, would be willing to tolerate a grade two diarrhea or a grade three diarrhea if the drug was working. If they had significant shrinkage of the tumor or if they were feeling okay, they'd say, look, yes, uh, it's not uh, ideal. I don't like this, but it's working, so I'm going to put up with this. I think for somebody to discontinue treatment, especially in the in the view of it's uh, provi- providing setting. some benefit, right. I think is very telling. So I think discontinuation rate or also dose reduction rates are really relevant here. Right. And, 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 I, and I think most people who are going on to these treatments want them to work. They're probably they're motivated. They're very motivated right. for them to, to continue taking the drug. It's not like we are asking to take a blood pressure pill when they don't feel bad from their blood pressure. Right. This right. is cancer. They want to play along with us. They're, they're very motivated, as you said. Right. So I think that for the listeners who are reading journal articles, I think it's important to look at dose reductions, dose discontinuation and to know that those are the rates of reduction and discontinuation often in the well-curified ranks of a clinical study with extremely motivated participants. And there's a bunch of data that's emerged from European nations, largely because of better record keeping, where they've shown that dose reduction and, and discontinuation are often higher in uh, the real world than in, than in clinical trial settings. And both of those things wouldn't be the end of the world if it weren't for the additional fact that it's some dose reduction and some level of dose discontinuation, um, marginal cancer drugs become arguably ineffective or perhaps even detrimental in certain cases, that there's a dose below which this drug simply is not going to benefit the patient. Absolutely. I mean, there's certainly the pharmacokinetics that go into whether or not a drug is hitting the target and how much drug you need. I think that's all very relevant. Um, Let me ask you about a paper that came out a couple years ago. This was by FOHO and colleagues in JAMA Otolaryngology. And what these authors did was, they did several things in the paper, but I'll talk about one of their findings. They looked at 71 consecutive drugs that were approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for solid cancers between the years 2002 and 2012. And I guess to frame this discussion, I think we talk a lot in oncology about um, the wonder drugs, and there have been many um, drugs that really do greatly benefit patients. Uh, We've both benefited from using those drugs in our clinical practice. Um, But what we don't talk about too often is that the average drug. And so FOHO and colleagues decided to look at the average drug. And in these 71 consecutive drugs approved for solid tumor, what they found was the median improvement in overall survival was about 2.1 months. Is that a sobering fact? Yes, that's very disappointing. I think, to your point, you had mentioned nesetumumab earlier. I don't view that as an advance. I view that as a, a lateral move. I don't think that that's significantly improving people's lives or making them feel any better. Because it adds toxicity. And actually, I pulled up on my screen. You can see here. This is the Kaplan-Meier survival curve. Um, when you look at a Kaplan-Meier survival curve like that from across the room there, Jeremy, can you, can you see two curves? Or do you need to put your reading glasses on? Yes, no, on? I've got good vision. I can see two curves, but they are very, very closely aligned. Could you shine a laser pointer between those two curves from across the room? No, I've got a very shaky hand sometimes. And if you can't shine that laser pointer between those two, those two curves, then my friend, I'm sorry to tell you, you cannot give the plenary session at this year's national meeting because that is the prerequisite to giving the plenary so session. So that, pl- that was not a plenary session. No, it wasn't a plenary session. That That's was true. an oral abstract, though. Yeah. Which, And I'll also tell you that um, there was some mixed uh, reviews during that, that presentation. I remember that. Some people were booing and some people were cheering. And I think... But did they actually boo? Some did. I've never heard booing at a national... There was, I don't really? know if it was booing, oh, but it was yeah. kind of like a... Ooh. The only time I've heard booing at a lecture is when I'm giving it. So I want, the, <laughs> I want the audience to know that. But I will say, uh, you're right, it's controversial. It went to the Oncology Drug Advisory Committee meeting, um, where I think it led to a very contentious discussion about whether this magnitude of benefit, this one point something month benefit of survival at this price 
and this toxicity is something that we ought to be pursuing in oncology. Well, one of the things that you're going to hate me to say, hate me saying is, well, that's an average, right? So you can say, well, there are some people that get a much better be- benefit than that. And, and then and then what must there also be? Some the flip who, side is, yeah, is that there's get, obviously have no benefit. Yes, I, I completely yeah, agree right. with you. But I'm just playing devil's advocate and saying that there are some people who say, yeah, look, a two-month improvement in overall survival may not seem like a lot to you. And this is the point that was made during the oral abstract session, is that for a patient, that may mean that they're able to get to their daughter's uh, uh, wedding, I that they're it. able to get to some other event. And then after that was said, a lot of people were clapping. So there's a strong bias towards increasing in people's overall survival. I, I think to your point, I think the toxicity and the cost of these things do not, generally speaking, get discussed at these conferences because the toxicity is always tolerable. Right. So I would say that if nesitumumab had no side effects, then I think every one of us on this planet will agree that adding life without paying any side effect price, uh, that's a net positive. Uh, The challenge with these cancer drugs is that they all inevitably have side effects. And the side effects are often under-discussed and um, uh, probably not doing due diligence at some of these very short uh, meetings. Uh, The other challenge I think we have is that we are incentivizing these drugs, not just a little, but a lot. You know, a survival benefit like that, that's not just, uh, you know, $100 million in profit. This is often billions of dollars in profit. And if you're giving someone so much profit for such marginal drugs, what incentive are you putting out there in the marketplace to push for the kind of drugs we really want, which are transformative drugs? In other words, if your child gets a D and you buy him a BMW, what incentive do they have to get the A? What are you going to buy him, a Ferrari? Uh, At what point do you need to have the incentives align and get drug development to go in the direction you want it to go? Well, I think part of what you're alluding to is is, is a incentive, a reward, if you will, for for a behavior. If the behavior is, I'm going to produce a drug that improves overall survival by two months and I will then make a billion dollars off of that, which is what happens, ironically, then there will continue to be incentive and motivation to do that. Right. The question is, is where does the rubber hit the road there? Uh, Does the FDA, is that their purview in your view, in your world? Is the FDA the one that needs to say, this is no longer acceptable. We have to have a bar. Minimum benefit. Yeah. And that's not just my view. That's the view of Steve Jaffe and I believe Justin Beckelman from the University of Pennsylvania, and they wrote this in JAMA saying that one of the things the FDA has to do is set a minimum bar. Because one of the things that we have now is when you increase your sample size large enough, any difference in survival uh, can be statistically significant with a P of 0.05 threshold. Theoretically, a drug could come to market that improves survival 18 hours with metastatic cancer uh, if the sample size is large enough. Uh, It could be one hour. You know, it's it's just a matter of power. And what we have in oncology and work done by Chris Booth and colleagues uh, from Kingston, Ontario, is we've seen the the average sample size of randomized controlled trials, especially in a paper by Adrian Satcher and colleagues in non-small cell lung cancer, it has gone up uh, over time. And the delta between the two arms that can be detected as statistically significant has gone down. So we're running larger and larger trials to find smaller and smaller benefits. These trials are not cheap to run, which is one thing we'll both agree. They're expensive to run, and people would not be running such large trials to detect such small benefits if it weren't for the fact that the profit margins reaped on those products is so great, it justifies the entire portfolio. I agree with you. I think the devil's in the details, though. You know, when it comes to a specific disease type, I think there may be a... Legitimate disagreement on what minimum benefit you should use. Right. You know, I'm thinking of, off the top of my head, I'm thinking of the Tarsiva, the erlotinib data in pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. You know, improved survival by... Ten days. It was ten days. I thought it was two weeks. I mean... Two weeks. See, once again, the hype 
has extended beyond the day on Tarsiva. <laughs> but two weeks, you know, those two weeks, you could get to another ball Ten game. Days. I mean, you can always make that argument that if you increase somebody's survival by five minutes, that's five more minutes of something they could do right, that they wouldn't right. be doing. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, somebody's got to make these decisions. Somebody needs to draw a line in the sand, Vinay. And I think a lot of people are very uncomfortable with that. That is making a very big judgment. And I think as Americans, the culture that we have endorsed is generally not consistent with that. And I think that's a very difficult pill to swallow for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that I think you're you're making an excellent point. I mean, this is a challenging discussion to have, I think, in any nation, particularly this nation. And I think there are a number of reforms that I would rather do first. I mean, this isn't the top of my my list. Uh, You know, my list would be, you know, using less surrogate endpoints, validating the surrogate endpoints you do use, uh, and then finally going to clinically meaningful benefits. But I think at least for overall survival. But for progression-free survival, I do think we could easily implement some meaningful benefits. You know, there's got to be a PFS below which it is simply not acceptable to approve. The other thing I think that would solve the problem is you don't have to power the trials to detect these benefits. And actually, investigators should say, you know, I don't want to be participating in overpowered clinical trials. It's actually squandering patients because what you're doing is you're putting more patients on that trial than you need to to answer the clinically relevant question. So I think that's another way we can kind of make a dent in this problem. But the FDA have a number of other mechanisms that I would would tackle first before I went after the minimum benefit. But I think nesitumumab and erlotinib and pancreatic cancer illustrate the worst case scenario, which is, you know, 10 days, maybe 30, 30 to 40 days survival benefits for drugs with severe toxicity uh, that cost, you know, over $50,000 per year or even over $100,000 per year. Um, I think you've hit most of my high points. Um, what else should we close with? Hmm. Well, Dr. Setnar, I'd like to thank you for coming in here. Um, it isn't easy. Uh, to come in here to push me a little bit because you know I could snap at any time. And you're lucky I didn't do that. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Vinay, and I would be happy to come back again and and, uh, discuss any topics that you would uh, see fit. Well, we'd love to have you back. We'd have to pick something where uh, we can really get into it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll bring the boxing gloves. Okay, good. Well, and I'll take them off. Uh, So it's a pleasure to have you, Dr. Setnar. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to an interview of Plenary Session. During the course of my interview with Dr. Jeremy Setnar, I referenced an article by Aaron Mitchell and I, embarrassingly, had forgot the details of. I've had a chance to refresh my memory, and this is an article that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine entitled, Pharmaceutical Industry Payments and Oncologist Selection of Targeted Cancer Therapies in Medicare Beneficiaries. Mitchell and colleagues looked at metastatic renal cell cancer, and CML, two conditions for which there are several drugs of the same therapeutic class that are used interchangeably among physicians, of which there's legitimate disagreement about which is the best drug. And they wanted to look at prescription patterns of serafinib, sutent, and pazopinib for RCC, and dasatinib, imatinib, and nilotinib for CML. And what they found was indeed there was a correlation between payments listed in CMS open payments and prescribing of these drugs. As a general rule across the board, when treating payments as a continuous variable, there was increased amounts of prescribing that went hand in hand with increased general payments. They also found when considering individual drugs that three of these drugs had statistically significant differences in prescribing among those receiving general payments and those who did not. Those were sutent, desatinib, and nilotinib. Interestingly, only imatinib had a negative correlation, i.e. that if you were paid um, by the makers of, of imatinib, um, you were less likely to prescribe the drug than were you not paid. And the authors make the excellent point 
of the following. For three out of six cancer drug studies, physicians who received general payments were more likely to prescribe the drug marketed by the company that made those payments. Imatinib was a notable exception. This may reflect a strategy by the manufacturer of imatinib, which also produces nilotinib, to promote switching to nilotinib before the patent expiration of imatinib in 2015. So that was the paper by Mitchell and colleagues, and I think it shows that not only um, is there the potential for bias, but that there is some empirical evidence that bias exists. I'd like to thank um, the people who helped make Plenary Session possible, uh, Kiana Klossner, um, music by Audrey Tran and Ian Staley, um, and I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Jeremy Setnar. Um, listeners of Plenary Session can get more information on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Um, they can also email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Um, and we are coming to iTunes eventually, slowly but surely. But for the time being, we'll be on SoundCloud. Uh, and I'm your host, Vinay Prasad. Um, follow me on Twitter at, at Vinay Prasad MD. Thank you. Standing up, standing up. Okay, good. Like all true professionals. Isn't awkward at all.